Our Father in heaven, we delight to be your people. And yet sometimes uh, your word challenges us in ways that are um, daunting and indeed scary. Uh, Please, therefore, by your spirit, give us uh, power and strength that we might uh, fulfil in our day the calling this text lays upon us. For your name's sake. Amen. I'm going to show my age uh, at the moment. Uh, When I was a student, uh, in every other bedroom throughout the campus, you would find a poster from the film Trainspotting. And no, not the recent one, I mean the original one. Uh, Often you had uh, Ewan McGregor's famous monologue. Do you remember Choose Life? Some of you are nodding, going, yeah, I remember that. Others are going, no idea at all. Uh, The premise of the film Trainspotting is pretty simple. Uh, Life is hard. It's full of physical and emotional pain, and you face a choice, ways to deal with pain. You can choose to escape the pain through drugs. In the case of the main characters of the film, that's through heroin, but I don't think that's completely alien to us as a generation, is it? Uh, We're the generation who runs straight to the medicine cabinet at the moment we've got the slightest twinge of a headache for the neurofen, don't we? We're, We're a generation that hasn't really known what it is to suffer. In many ways, we have all sorts of things that take away our pain, hence the rise of opioid addictions. Well, in the film, uh, McGregor's Renton decides that uh, drugs are not going to be the answer, that he's going to, in the end, go straight and choose life. And what he means by choosing life is uh, the job, the, the family, the big TV, the car, the gadgets, the mortgage, the gym membership, the pension scheme, and death in a very middle-class way. In effect, the film says, look, you've got a choice of escapism through drugs, which is dangerous, or escapism through stuff, uh, comforts. The The more fun stuff you have in your life, the less you'll notice that life is hard. And I think, to be honest, everybody in the post-war generations has been raised with that idea that you can have stuff that numbs the pain of life. It's better than drugs anyway, isn't it? And our text this morning says, I'm not sure those are the only two options. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the uh, apologist, French apologist, uh, said that if you sit for seven minutes in silence, your own mind will start asking you all of those existential questions that nobody has an answer to. Who am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? What do I do about suffering? All of those questions. And he said, we we entertain ourselves to death because we're afraid of not having the answers to those questions. There's, There's physical pain, there's emotional pain, and there's existential trauma. And Pascal was writing in the 1650s, and I think probably... We're even better at entertaining ourselves to death today. What are we to do about pain? What are we to do with suffering? And Paul's answer here is, at least when it comes to suffering as a Christian, is embrace it. Don't choose life. If choosing life means living for this world and its fleeting comforts and giving up on God... Choose death, actually. Choose martyrdom if that's what it takes. 
if like me you missed last Sunday's sermon then probably it would help you as much as it helps me to 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 look at the context of our passage to understand what's going on Uh, 2 Timothy is a personal letter uh, between the Apostle Paul and one of his most trusted lieutenants uh, Timothy Paul is suffering verse 12 tells us that he's suffering verse 8 tells us he's a prisoner he's suffering in prison It's likely this is the last thing that Paul ever wrote. So it's the last thing he wrote that we have a copy of before he was martyred. He's very aware that he's about to face execution. And if there's anybody, therefore, in the world who has a right to existential angst, it's going to be Paul, isn't it? Is it worth it? That's the question. Paul's facing execution. But worse than that, he's been abandoned by his friends. So we find out in verse 15, have a look down with me. You know, Timothy, that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Paul's band of trusted associates is breaking down. And one by one, they're fleeing away from him to left and right. Men and women from the churches are openly opposing him. He feels friendless and is surely wondering now if the whole gospel enterprise is worth it. The emotional turmoil for Paul must have been very great. And you do get a sense of that as you read this letter. The the sheer weight of what's happening to Paul comes through in every verse. But you can add into that, can't you, Paul's physical sufferings. We know from uh, 2 Corinthians that Paul suffered perhaps more than any other human being apart from Jesus for the gospel. Floggings and stonings and shipwrecks and every other thing. Was it worth it? Surely, of all people, Paul has a right to give up and say no. How would you feel in that situation? We might expect to read Paul here wallowing in self-pity, full of regrets and apparently wasting his life. So much promise as a young man, a leading Pharisee, uh, destined to be one of the great rulers of the Jews, giving all of that up and suffering so much for what appears to be so little fruit. And we might expect Paul to write to Timothy and say, for goodness sakes, Timothy, run while you've still got the chance. Get your head down. Whatever you do, don't copy me. But what is Paul's command to to his friend Timothy here, his spiritual son? Verse 9, have a look with me. Sorry, verse 8. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Join in suffering. Choose death, Timothy. Embrace suffering in this world because it is worth it. Even if the whole world tells you it's not. And let me show you why it's worth it. Uh, uh, our first point then, uh, verses 9 to 11, the now and not yet of the gospel. And if you were with me uh, for the series we talked through just a few weeks ago, this would be quite familiar. Because Paul is here laying out what he lays out in several of his books, that there is a now and a not yet to the gospel. And the key here, I think, is verse 10. Have a look at verse 10. Our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul faces the executioner. And he says here, Jesus has destroyed death and brought immortality, indestructible, eternal existence to light. It's it's mad, isn't it? Paul is about to have his head cut off on the block, and he says, I'm immortal, indestructible. 
the now and not yet of the gospel. You see, our culture, much like Paul's, I think, actually, is obsessed with this world, isn't it? If you can't have it here, it's not worth having. We struggle with pain, don't we? Because we know life is 70, 80 years if we're lucky. And so every moment where we suffer is a wasted moment and you can't get that back. We're afraid because we know that at any moment, uh, death could take hold of us. I I got a text just last Sunday evening from an old housemate of mine, a mutual friend of ours, same age as me, had just passed away uh, from cancer the night before after a two-year battle with cancer. And we know, don't we, that, that these things can just come and get you as you cross the road after church this morning. And so we don't want any moment to be wasted in suffering needlessly. Every pain is a wasted moment. But you see, Jesus has come. He's, he's died for sin. He's abolished the punishment that we deserve for our rejection of God. He's opened the way up to eternal life. That is forever living. That is never ceasing to exist. A hundred billion years and more. Of course, we're not really there yet, are we? We're still living in this world full of pain and decay and death. But it is coming. Jesus has proved it. He's raised from the dead. He's never going to die again. First fruits of the resurrection. And that changes everything. Because there are no wasted moments at that point. There are no moments that you can't get back because there's an eternity in front of you. An eternity where you will enjoy every good thing with God forever. And for Paul, that makes all of the difference. So in 4 verse 7, uh, over the page, uh, straight after saying, I'm about to die, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, says Paul, he says this, verse 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, that's this life, the hard race of this life. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, that's Jesus, will award me on that day, the day when I pass through the pearly gates. Paul says, I'm going to die. And I can't wait. Because he doesn't see the acts. He sees the life to come and he is properly excited about it. The future to come puts this present life and all of its pain in its proper perspective. And Paul will suffer anything now for that future. He says, verse 9 of our passage, God chose us in eternity past for an eternal future. And this life is just... It's a breath. It's just fleeting. It's passing. We're like the grass of the field. And see, every Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning, then you belong fundamentally not to this world, but the one to come. That's what Paul says, essentially, in verse 12. He says, that's why I'm suffering as I am. Why are you suffering as you are, Paul? Uh, Well, verse 11. Of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Paul is suffering because he faithfully preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel of another world... A kingdom to come, and the world here hates that gospel and persecutes those who proclaim that this world is under judgment and only those trusting in Jesus get to be spared on the final day. The world hates it and persecutes God's people. 
but the promise is very great. Of course, uh, Paul and Timothy are both gospel workers, and you may be sat there thinking, I'm not a gospel worker, I'm an accountant or a teacher. Uh, This doesn't apply to me. And to some extent, you're right. Uh, Paul is laying a commission on Bible teachers, that would be Andy and myself primarily, and and Linda and and Paula. But actually, uh, we're going to see in the last three verses of this passage that Paul has application for every one of us. What it looks like to live the Christian life now in light of the one to come. Notice verse 9 that Paul calls this a holy calling, a holy life. Do you remember from just a couple of weeks ago, uh, to be holy means to be set apart from sin, to be set apart from uh, this world in order to be godly, to be servants of God. Uh, to be a Christian is to be a set apart person from this world for the next, to live in light of the next. And Paul says, just live, live consistently with the gospel, the gospel of a suffering saviour. And so he gives us the principle there in verse 8. Uh, the gospel call is this, unashamedly share in suffering. Verse 8, unashamedly share in suffering. Uh, the, the rest of the passage he breaks into three parts, I think. The first is there in verse 8, it's a principle that governs the whole passage. Then there's the specific application to Timothy, verses 13 and 14. And then there are three examples that Paul gives through the passage. He gives himself, verse 12. He gives the negative example, Phygelus and Hermogenes, at verse 15, and the example positively of Onesiphorus, verses 16 to 18. Three examples illustrating the principle so that Timothy will live out verses 13 and 14. That's where we're going the rest of our time. The principle in verse 8 has two parts. One, a negative statement, don't do this, and a positive statement, but do do this. And they, they are mirror images of each other, but not the mirrors that you might expect. Just take a look at the negative statement in the beginning of verse 8, would you? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed, he says. Don't be embarrassed. Don't duck and cover. Don't pretend you're not a Christian because it's socially awkward. Don't be, in particular, ashamed of Jesus. It's easy, isn't it, to talk about church? It's harder to talk about Jesus. Have you noticed that? What do you do do on Sunday? We went to church. Not I follow Jesus, because it's just much more awkward to explain that, isn't it? Don't be embarrassed to be associated with a crucified saviour. Even though the world out there will not understand it, and sometimes will hate it. But also, did you notice, don't be indirectly embarrassed about Jesus by being ashamed of those who suffer the way Jesus did. Like Paul is doing, Paul's in prison, and people are giving up on him. They're giving up on Jesus by giving up on Paul. Did you notice that? It'd be so easy in the office, wouldn't it? You know, uh, something in the newspaper. Uh, I remember uh, a number of years ago, a friend coming to a, to a, a party with a full page from The Guardian written by a minister in Southwark about my minister up in London. Uh, it was absolutely scandalous, the things that were being said, and I knew that they weren't true be so easy, wouldn't it, when that sort of thing is in the papers? Maybe it's to do with Christian bakers in Northern Ireland, and we just go, I, I, I'm nothing like those guys. You know, when people are talking about that sort of thing, you go, they're, they're just crazies. That's not me. Also, don't be ashamed of those who are suffering for the gospel. But then he flips it. Rather, he says, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. See, the opposite of being ashamed 
is not being not ashamed. Okay, that'd be relatively straightforward, wouldn't it? I think that not being ashamed is implicit. Don't be ashamed, therefore be unashamed. But he says, actually, the opposite of being ashamed is suffering for the gospel. Now, it's not going to be an equal suffering, is it? I don't think anyone's ever been suffered as much as Paul did. And none of us will. Uh, Paul's about to be martyred for the gospel. I doubt that any of us will be. Might be, but I doubt it. But Timothy is being asked to identify with Paul. To share in his shame and suffering for the gospel. We're not likely to have to, to die for the gospel, but we might have to stand with those who are suffering for the gospel. So let me pause and just ask you for a moment. Christianity says, here is immortality. You can live forever in glorious paradise with God. But this life is following a crucified saviour. You will suffer. And you will need to stand with those who suffer for the gospel. Have you counted the cost? It means being unashamed of the gospel, standing up, standing out. And you will become a magnet for persecution. Have you counted the cost? Are you prepared to lose your reputation socially? Are you prepared to lose your job, your, your money, your home, your life, if it comes to it? Because that is what it has cost Christians all through history and is costing them throughout the world at the moment. 150,000 martyrs a year for the gospel worldwide. Almost none of them, almost none of them in this country. 150,000 a year. You work it out, it's about 500 a day. Of course, Paul is aware that, that many people won't accept that, the terms of the agreement there, the, the suffering. And so he, he takes us to verse 15 and the example of those who are ashamed of the gospel. This is the people who are not meeting Paul's criteria from verse 8. He introduces us to fight jealous and homogenies, and they've clearly hurt Paul. In a big way. See, he says, everyone's abandoning me, but he lists these two particular people because presumably they were close friends. They were those who'd been allies at some point in the past. Timothy would have known them well from his travels with Paul over a number of years, and they've betrayed Paul. He's hurt. Now, it's not clear here why they've abandoned Paul, but see, that this is meant to be a warning for Timothy don't be like these guys. So they're, they're clearly ashamed of Paul and clearly ashamed of the gospel. Now they've looked at Paul, the great apostle, in prison, about to die, and they've gone, this gospel, this Jesus, this Christianity is madness. Why would you follow this sort of saviour? Perhaps they're just like Demas in 4 verse 10, who has abandoned Paul because he's in love with this world. That would be a way of putting it, wouldn't it? Wanting to enjoy this world so much that the idea of suffering for the gospel is mental. And so he says, 4 verse 3, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, that is the gospel truth, and gospel living, suffering for the gospel. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around the great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I don't want to hear the truth of the gospel anymore. I don't want that suffering pathway to glory. I want something else, something comfortable, something easy. I prefer myths, lies, anything that allows me to have a suffering-free religion. 
And that's what they're getting. Do you notice uh, 2 verse 18? They, they, there are teachers who are saying the resurrection has already taken place. And so they're destroying the faith of some, he says. Do you, do you realise how appealing that idea is that the resurrection is already happening? That this is the resurrection life. Uh, this is uh, heaven. This is every good thing given to you now that God is ever going to give. No suffering, no, no pain. Health, wealth, happiness, a pain-free existence. It's desperately tempting, isn't it? They're saying the future has come now. Have everything now. It's brilliant now. Which is very attractive to young people, but not tremendously attractive to those of us whose bodies are falling apart on them. Because we know it's not true. But itching ears, you see. A false gospel so tempting. Have this world, love this world, have everything now. And it's a false gospel because you will die, brothers and sisters. This is not eternal life now. You will die. Even if you avoid suffering for Jesus now, you're still going to suffer in the end because Jesus will separate the sheep and the goats. And this life can never satisfy in the way that that life will. It is a lie. And Paul says it is destroying the faith of some. That is, it is blasphemous, treacherous lies that people like Phygelus and Hermogenes are listening to and they're abandoning God. And yet here is Paul saying, in amongst all of this, I'm looking forward to going home crown of righteousness and I wonder who do you think has it better who do you think has made the right choice perhaps 2,000 years later we look back I wonder who do you think for Judson Homogenes or Paul who, who made the right choice well let's take a, a look at the positive example of Paul in verse 12 of unashamed suffering Paul says verse 12 I know whom I have believed and that is the thing that sways Paul isn't it Paul will stake the worst possible life here on the promise of God because he knows God is trustworthy. That eternal future is unseen. How do you know that it's coming? How do you know that you can have it because God's word tells you and God is a a, a truth-telling God because he's raised Jesus from the dead so he's proved that he can do it. I have here in my hand a a cheque for a million pounds. Genuinely, I signed it, dated it. It's blank, so if you come and wrestle with me later, you can have it. Um, You can put your name on it. You can try and take it to the bank. It's not worth a million pounds, because I don't have a million pounds. The bank will bounce that without any shadow of a doubt. And uh, it's worthless. In fact, I'm going to tell you that just on the off chance that you do try and fight me for it. (laughs) But let me say, let's say that you've got a brown envelope through the post from the HMRC, and they wrote you a cheque for a million pounds. My guess is you wouldn't tear that one up. My guess is you'd go, I know that they've got a million pounds. I'm going to run off to the bank today and I'm going to pay it in today and I'm going to watch as that million pounds hits my bank account. Because you know that the person who makes the promise can meet it. And God has raised Jesus from the dead. He says, I am able. I am able. And I promise you, It is available to you as well. And so Paul looks back at his suffering. 
at his present abandonment by his friends, at his coming execution, and he says, it's so worth it. I'll have suffering with Christ, like Christ now, for that eternal glory forever. But he says, will you, Timothy? And so through Timothy says to us, will you? Will you be unashamed and suffer for the gospel? And in case you're still thinking, but yeah, but this is still about Bible teaching ministries. This is the suffering that, that Andy can expect and that I can expect. But what about you guys? Who, who do different jobs. And then he gives us the example of Onesiphorus in verses 16 to 18. He says, this is what it's looked like for a, for a, a bona fide Christian who's not a, a Bible teacher, he's just a regular Christian living out this principle of suffering for the gospel, verses 16 to 18. Let's have a look at this. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. See, there's the principle. Not ashamed of my chains. Not ashamed of the one suffering for Jesus. Often refresh me. On the contrary, okay, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it looked like for, for him. When he was in Rome, where Paul's in prison, he searched hard, he searched diligently, urgently, carefully for me until he found me. He wasn't ashamed of me. He didn't hide from me. He didn't run away from me. But actually, when he came to Rome, he sought me out. He found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. Do you see? What did it look like for Onesiphorus to suffer with Paul, refreshing him, walking with him, seeking him out, being willing to go to the prison, have his name in the visitor's logbook, you know? Have the authorities go, oh, he might be another one of those. We might just keep an eye on him. To share in Paul's sufferings. I wonder, if I were thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, would you visit? Would you help to look after Mim and the kids? If the papers were writing shameless things about me. If it was really costly to be seen with someone like that. What if uh, things were written about Andy in the national press or the local press and somebody got hold of those and said have you seen this guy a hate preacher terrible things he said would you stand up and say actually no he's one of my pastors and I, I agree with him it's not hate actually he preaches a gospel of love but I stand with him would you and that's what Onesiphorus did and Paul says uh, would that God would uh, give him every blessing on that final day. Because that day is coming, brothers and sisters. So Timothy, I've given you a, a simple principle. Suffer for the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. I've told you why you can trust it, because uh, Jesus is a suffering saviour who's opened the way to immortality. God's proven he can do it. I, I, I've told you God is uh, making promises that he can keep. And I've laid out before you two parts. Two ways to live that reflect two different hopes. Hope in this world, a hope in the next. And two different gospels. A gospel of immortality and a gospel of having everything you can get now, which will be taken away on the last day. So Timothy, what will you do? And he gives Timothy very specific instructions, doesn't he, of what it's going to look like for him. And I think they're summarised in uh, the first words of verse 14. Have a look with me. Guard the good deposit. 
And the good deposit here is the pattern of sound teaching that Paul talks about in verse 13. What you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. And what's he to do with it? We see it in 2 verse 2. 2 verse 2. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, there you are, the, the, the same pattern of sound teaching, entrust to reliable people who would be qualified to teach others also. Here's a pattern of sound teaching. Pass it on. Entrusted to you, now entrust it to others. I've given it to you, now give it to others. See, that's what it means to guard the gospel, to guard the good deposit. We think about guarding, don't we, as shove stuff in prison, lock it away. Mount the guards around them. Stop anyone getting near it. And that's just not what Paul's got in mind here. If you put the gospel in a lockbox in a room with a door locked, it'll be forgotten. That's the opposite of what Paul wants to see happen. So 2 verse 2 again. Uh, What you've heard from me, entrust to reliable people who will be able to tell others also. Guarding the good deposit is giving it away tearing down false gospels like the one that Hermogenes and Phygelus have believed making clear to the next generation this is the gospel eternal life through Jesus but the narrow way now this is the only way of salvation it's the only way to have the immortality that every heart wants How is Timothy going to pass the gospel on to the next generation when he faces so much opposition, when Paul's on the way out, when all his friends are abandoning the church? How is he going to do it? How will he guard this good deposit when it seems so much more attractive to give it up and pursue this world? By the power of the Spirit. Verse 14. Verse 7, we're told last week's passage that God has given a spirit of power Verse 12, Paul tells us that God is able to guard what has been entrusted, which I take to be the gospel, uh, because the language is so very similar to verse 14. Uh, The word uh, powerful is the word dynamos, dynamite. Uh, The word able is the same word. God is powerful, he's dynamite to guard the gospel. He's able. And so verse 14, guard it by giving it away with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The powerful Holy Spirit is guarding the gospel, spreading it, preserving it from generation to generation. It has come down to us 20, 30, 40, 50 generations down the road because the Holy Spirit is in the church guarding the gospel. Now, my friends, none of us is Paul and few of us will ever be a Timothy but the need is the same in our generation as it has always been. That if we do not guard the gospel, if we do not pass the gospel on to the next generation, then the light will go out. Some of us will be Timothys, but all of us can be an Onesiphorus, can't we? All of us have a responsibility to make sure the gospel goes out to the next generation, and we must be willing to suffer a little in our own corner of the mission field here in southwest London to see that happen. I think Jesus makes exactly the same point in Mark chapter 8. He says, if anyone, not just a gospel worker, but if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory 
with the holy angels. See, that future day is coming when Jesus separates the world into the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. And whether we've been ashamed of Jesus really, really matters on that day. Don't be ashamed of him, of his gospel, or those who suffer for the gospel. Rather, says Jesus, count the cost. For whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And now I'm not yet of the gospel. Suffer now for glory later, or glory now, and hell for eternity. And God has said, I will raise you on that last day. You have my word for it. You have the proof of it in, the, in Jesus' resurrection. But the road there is going to be hard, isn't it? It's a narrow way. It's a rocky, hard climb. And that's where it bites for us, isn't it? Are we prepared to pay the cost to stand out in a hostile generation? A generation that's getting more hostile. And not just to the doctrine of the church, but to the lifestyle of the church. Our morals are now immoral to the world outside us. Are we prepared to stand up and own the gospel? To speak it? To lose our reputations for it? To lose our jobs for it? And indeed, will our lifestyle choices, the things that we do, say to our peers and to our friends, and perhaps especially to our children, that we don't seek a kingdom that's here, we seek a kingdom that's to come. And we'll endure anything here to get there. Friends, you can't have this world and the next. You can't have them both. It's an either-or, isn't it? It's a dangerous choice, and Paul knows that even Timothy, his co-worker of 20 years, his spiritual son, is tempted by the world. And he knows that we'll be tempted as well. Are we prepared to spend ourselves here because we know that eternity is a really long time to enjoy God's good things? Spend our time, spend our money, spend our energies for God. Make choices that even scare us because it's the right thing to do. Choose life, he says. Uh, This life... Trying to numb the pain as much as you can do until you die. Or the next life. Accepting suffering now for immortality. Well, may God have mercy on us. Shall we pray that we make a wise choice? Our Father, you know our hearts. You know the draw of the world to every one of us. You know how hard it is to choose suffering for the sake of the gospel. uh, To stand with those who suffer. To uh, be willing to suffer ourselves. To suffer the loss of reputation, the loss of uh, income, the loss of friendships, the loss of everything. As Jesus did, bore the shame for us. Our Father, please... Uh, Lay it upon our hearts that you are a God who makes promises and keeps them every time. That you have proven your power to give immortal life by raising Jesus and seating him at your right hand. We, uh, We want to long for that day. We want to fix our eyes on that day. Please wean us off this world and help us in our weakness to be 
to be those who are empowered by your spirit to guard and walk with those who guard the gospel. For your namesake. Amen.